School didn't teach us how to be good at love. So I created the Stubborn Love Podcast to help you navigate it. With my expertise in the marriage therapy biz, I'll share insights on topics like sex, money, and rock and roll. Um, I mean, navigating conflict and more. No matter what stage of relationship you're in right now, this podcast is for you. Every episode has actionable tips that will help you create a happier, healthier, and more fulfilling life with the people you love. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now and join me on this journey of love and learning for the stuff they didn't teach you in relationship school. All right, listeners, welcome back to another episode of Stubborn Love. I am especially excited today because we have a very special guest. Um, her name is Rachel, and she's a third-year doctoral candidate and teaches undergraduate courses in communication studies at West Virginia University. So why I'm so excited about this episode is because one of the areas that she studies in is communication experiences and dynamics in traditionally underrepresented romantic relationships, such as consensual non-monogamous relationships and interracial couples. So she believes research is at its best when diverse scholars can collaborate to create translational research that serves communities in need. And I know with the population that I work with that this is um, such a beautiful uh, way to be able to bring light to many underrepresented communities. So, so excited that you're here today, Rachel. Um, why don't you go ahead and give listeners a little bit of taste of like your journey and how you got to where you are today, please. Hi, Paige. Thank you for having me and for that uh, very warm introduction. So um, I've always had sort of just like a personal curiosity about alternative relationships. Um, so when I first was exposed to consensual non-monogamy, it was actually through, you know, reading some of the research that's out there on these relationships. Um, and at first when I heard about it, I was really drawn to it uh, and just, you know, wanting to know more about it, but didn't really think that it was something that would be like a realistic option for me in my personal life. Uh, and then, you know, when we had the onset of the COVID pandemic and the lockdown and everything was crazy, uh, this sort of gave me time to think about what I really wanted uh, in life. So at that point, I decided to uh, pursue consensual non-monogamy in my personal life um, after uh, many failed monogamous relationships. And I have personally found that journey so fulfilling and was wanting to give back to the community through my academic research endeavors. Um, the population of consensually non-monogamous people is also very diverse in terms of race, ethnicity, SES, religion, and, and political affiliation. And the population is also growing. Approximately two per, or 22% of Americans have been in a consensually non-monogamous relationship at some point in their life. Um, and approximately 4 to 5% are engaged in a consensually non-monogamous relationship at any given time. Um, but yet we still live in a society where we're so entrenched in mononormativity that most people don't even know it exists. Like I didn't even know that a lot of these alternative forms of relationships and relationship structures were out there. Um, and until recently, uh, empirical investigations of these relationships was very sort of narrowly focused on topics like, you know, just mapping out the relationship styles and structures within consensual non-monogamy, 
uh, stigma experienced by this population um, and also just embedding this population in larger issues facing the LGBTQIA plus community. Uh, and a lot of researchers have even argued that those who have studied these relationships from a mononormative perspective have presented finding, findings fraught with bias and methodological issues and have really only discussed these relationships in terms of how they compare to ideologically dominant monogamous relationships rather than how these unique multifaceted relationships function in and of themselves. Um, so that's where I see my research contributing is you know, exploring these unique relationships uh, for what they are, you know, how, what makes them successful or unsuccessful, uh, how people in these relationships navigate unique challenges, um, and how it might inform ideas about their identity and worldview. Um, and I really enjoy this research. My other sort of line of research is about um, experiences of discrimination uh, and prejudice in organizations. Um, and although I find that very fulfilling, it can be um, very taxing sometimes. Uh, so this is sort of the more like fun side of what I do, in my opinion. Yes, yes. Um, thank you so much for all that information. I, um, I'm i now enlightened and I didn't even think about the kind of bias that researchers themselves would be having when conducting studies like this, you know, with you know, some of them having that framework of, you know, coming at it from the mononormativity lens that really already does skew and set up some bias in findings. So um, that's that's really interesting that that sounds a lot more common than I thought existed. Mm -hmm. I mean, I do think these things are getting better. Um the American Psychological Association, for example, now has a Division 44 committee um, that is focused on advocacy and for and research on consensually non-monogamous relationships. Um, and that is, you know, something that is growing and very productive. Uh, so I do think that in the past decade, we're seeing more diverse approaches and ideas in this relation or this research on this uh, population. Um, and I think that this committee is taking positive, positive steps forwards in other ways to, um, you know, ensure that this population is protected in the realm of academic research. And also that this research that we're producing uh, that's looking at this population is quality. Yes. Yeah. I think one thing that came up for me that I related to for you is I actually didn't know that this really existed either before I started becoming a therapist. Um, I, it, you know, even in my graduate school class, sexuality was like really glossed over. Like we only had one class out of our whole, you know, program to be able to really explore sexuality when this is such a really big, important part of many people's lives. So um, I'm, I'm so, I think you're right that like the, the research is only going to grow from here on out and um, that this is just going to start becoming more and more normalized as, you know, the world keeps on going. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned um, education in public schools and their lack of attention to um, sexuality and sexual orientation in general. Uh, you know, I have so many, you know, opinions and problems with the way that we approach uh, sex education in public schools. 
um, and among those many problems is the lack of attention to consensual non-monogamy. There was a survey that a researcher did recently, uh, and 0% of the participants reported that they had ever been exposed to consensual non-monogamy in public school settings in general. and that's just like to me so like alarming and it also aligns with my own experience too you know i would not have been aware of this necessarily if not for what i do professionally um and it's just i think really sad i mean like sexual orientation if we're not exposed to you know the prevalence of these lifestyles and identities and you know given the opportunity to explore our own and affirm them like how limited does that make like young people in this country in terms of knowing themselves? You know, I didn't really figure out my sexuality until uh, my early twenties um, just because, and I didn't feel like I was like discriminated against or faced a lot of prejudice or anything like that growing up. And as a teenager, I was very fortunate and privileged in that way. Uh, but it did take me a lot longer to figure it out because it just wasn't normalized. You know, again, very entrenched in heteronormativity, mononormativity, um, with, again, no mention of consensual non-monogamy, but even sexual orientations outside heteronormativity being framed as something like, you know, like that's what other people do and we just need to like support and accept them. Uh, but it wasn't something that I was encouraged to necessarily unpack for myself. Yeah, yeah. And I think that experience that you're talking about is something so common and and something that could like really easily, like we can make really small changes to start normalizing other sexualities, other types of um, relationship dynamics, like something as small as like you're in kindergarten and you get a worksheet about homework and it talks about, you know, instead of, um, you know, having a um, heteronormative relationship about like, oh, Sally is a female who has a husband named John, you know, just normalizing, you know, what about Sally and Jill, who is her wife or who is non-binary or, you know, just like these really simple things to open up the idea that you don't only have to choose between like, like this one box. Right. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. Um, And it's interesting too, because even when people are able to affirm these identities outside of heteronormativity, um, we still live in a society that so often traduces who we are um, that, you know, there's not only enacted discrimination and stigma, uh, but we also suffer from both anticipated and internalized stigma as well. Um, you know, meaning that there's a lot of minority stress from just thinking about the possibility of facing that stigma and discrimination. Um, and like also implicitly sort of engaging in some of these beliefs ourselves, even when we're in relationships that don't reflect these mononormative and heteronormative beliefs. Yes. Yeah. And, and that's, that's really tough to deal with. So, um, you know, going back to your research, I'm really curious, um, in terms of like, what would be out of all the research you've seen, the most surprising finding that you've noticed from your studies so far? 
Yeah. Um, so from my own research, I think the thing that has surprised me the most in my own findings is just the large variety of successful communication strategies for mm-hmm. navigating these unique challenges and consensually non-monogamous relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in American culture for romantic relationships, generally we have these prescriptions uh, about like the ideology of openness and that you know, open, honest, completely transparent communication is, you know, the best pathway to a successful intimate relationship. Um, And I do think that this is also something that is uh, encouraged a lot in the consensual non-monogamy community as well. Um, And this is tough for me because I tend to align with this. Like I am a very sort of open and direct person in the context of my romantic relationships. Mm -hmm. um, So that is something I think that definitely works for me. But what I'm finding in my research is that it's not necessarily true for everyone in both monogamous and conceptually non-monogamous relationships. Yeah. Um, And I just, I guess I'm sort of surprised at how well implicit rules and agreements in consensually non-monogamous relationships function. And again, my personal bias is bleeding through here because like I would want to sort of like know everything, have everything explicitly spelled out. Right. Um, And that works for some people, but for other people, they're able to navigate it um, with a little bit more individual privacy and autonomy. And, you know, that autonomy support is a big part of, you know, what makes these consensually non-monogamous relationships and monogamous relationships as well Mm -hmm. um, so satisfying. Yeah. I I might throw you a curveball here, but I'm wondering, like, if you can maybe list, like, a specific example of the type of communication where the the relationships are working and functioning really well and healthy, but they're not necessarily needing to be, like, that level of open honesty, transparency um, that, that you've also found that also works. Like, what would be an example of the kind of implicit type of dynamics or conversations that people aren't necessarily like uh, having in terms of like openness? Sure. Um, I have a couple of examples. Uh, The first one that like really, really fascinates me is uh, the use of euphemisms uh, to sort of uh, be on the same page without directly talking about um, extra dyadic activity, for example. Yeah. And it's really, really funny, like some of the examples that uh, people have given me in my own research Mm -hmm. um, and the words they choose to use. Uh, I don't necessarily want to give specific quotes from my data because I don't want to, like, um, you know, violate my participants' privacy or anything. Um, But people are very creative um, Mm. and it allows them to, you know, have that comfort of, like, feeling like um, they're still connected with their partner communicatively, but Mm -hmm. still Mm -hmm. allowing everyone else involved to maintain their privacy. Yeah. Um, I've also seen that a lot of my participants um, are just really good at sort of, you know, knowing their partner and reading Mm -hmm. things like nonverbal cues um, and sort of determining like on the fly, like what is comfortable to talk about what is necessary versus not necessary. Yeah. Um, yeah. One other thing I've seen is um, they sort of set up boundaries up front and then just as, like assume that all parties are adhering to them. And there's just like that high level of trust. So therefore you don't need that 
verbal confirmation all the time. So those are a couple of the ways that I've seen um, my participants navigate some of these challenges um, with strategies other than that open direct communication, which again, I think also works too. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And from what you're talking about, like those strategies that they use, I also see in hetero um, mono norm relationships as well. That, that do work for them, you know, the euphemism, kind of like that implicit, hey, I'm doing this thing, or I'm saying I'm doing this thing, but I'm not directly saying every little detail about what it is. But you know what I mean, sweetie, right? So that's um, cool that that can be applied to all kinds of different relationships. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know you've uh, done a lot of work um, with really a lot of your findings, noticing discrimination, stigma, things like that. So I'm curious, what has your research shown in regards to the stigma against consensually non-monogamous relationships? What's come mm-hmm. up? So there are a lot of similarities uh, that and parallels that we can draw between consensually non-monogamous folks and the LGBTQIA population, um, especially if you look at these relationships through a minority stress framework. Um, yet for consensually non-monogamous individuals, we have no legal protections. Um, you know, I think we have made progress in the LGBTQIA plus community, uh, but unfortunately now we're seeing the pendulum like kind of swing back the other way. Um so I think that that's something the consensual uh, non-monogamy community might be able to learn from. Um, at, and hopefully we can support each other. Uh, you know, many people consider being consensually non-monogamous an identity uh, in and of itself. Uh, others see it as more of a relationship and structural choice. And then others see it more like a, a belief system and equated to something kind of similar to religion. Um And, you know, there's a lot of debate about this in the community. Um, And I think all these perspectives are valid. You know, I don't think that one is necessarily more correct than the other. Um, But again, the stigma remains uh, and the lack of legal protections against it. Uh, It's some of the more specific forms that people in consensually non-monogamous relationships face are, you know, being seen as sexually riskier despite, you know, more frequent use of protection with committed partners and other more casual intimate encounters, uh, more frequent for testing for STIs and HIV. Um, They're also commonly seen as immoral, unstable, and just fraught with conflict. Um, Yet research shows no psychological difference between those in consensually non-monogamous relationships and those in monogamous relationships. And in those studies where they've compared that the two forms of relationships, um, individuals in conceptually non-monogamous relationships uh, will report the same or in some cases even better uh, well-being, relational quality, sexual satisfaction, uh, and also just a variety of other specific positive experiences uh, like personal growth improved interpersonal communication, sex life, and relationships generally, um, relief from some of the restrictions associated with mononormativity, and often decreases of jealousy, uh, which I think tends to surprise a lot of people. Yeah. um, I think I've also noticed, like, whenever I'm explaining consensual non-monogamy to others, they're 
kind of like, wait a second, how are you not jealous all the time? And for one thing I like to do in talking about jealousy is I like to normalize it because we experience jealousy in all kinds of dynamics, not only in a romantic partner sense, not only in, um, you know, needing to have a relationship. And, and so I do a little bit of education around this isn't the only place it shows up, number one. And number two, it's a valid emotion just like any other. And you learn to manage it. And when you have really supportive partners, um, especially if um, you have such really good open communication in a CNM relationship, then it can really, you know, not be something that causes a lot of havoc be between parties because it's well managed and talked about. Yes, I totally agree with you. Uh, jealousy is also like a big area of interpersonal communication broadly as well, not just with uh, consensually non-monogamous folks. Uh, and I'm not a jealousy expert. I don't really study jealousy in my own research. Um, but in a lot of my graduate coursework, we would talk about the social construction of jealousy and how taboo it is, at least in our culture. Um, and that makes it because it's so taboo, we're afraid to talk about it. We're afraid to acknowledge it as a valid emotion uh, rather than, you know, this make or break experience. Um, and in, instead, like, construe it as something that's survivable and just like any other emotion, something that we need to process in a productive manner. Um, and even, you know, just kind of pivoting a little bit, like what we're talking about right now, this is just like the day-to-day, -day, like, uh, sort of, colloquial stigma but these manifest in very real structural barriers as well for people in consensually non-monogamous relationships um like those in consensually non-monogamous relationships face a lot of challenges to custody uh that occur in a variety of circumstances um even though polyamorous parents for example report several benefits to raising children with multiple partners both sort of like logistically and for their children's ideological development as well. Um, there's also barriers to sexual health care due to discrimination from service providers, um, you know, discrimination in the corporate sector. Uh, there was one case study that a polyamorous identified plaintiff was denied uh, an unlawful termination by discrimination verdict in a court because polyamory was not considered a sexual orientation in and of itself, so therefore it was not protected legally. Uh, yeah, you can also be subject to dishonorable discharge or imprisonment in the military should you openly practice consensual non-monogamy. Um, so very real consequences. And I'm sure that you find things in your practice too. You know, a lot of uh, the research on consensually non-monogamous clients and therapy, you know, so many of them terminate therapy prematurely because they don't have a consensually non-monogamous affirming therapist um and they feel judged um it's just yeah. really sad yeah it's it's really sad i'm um i'll get to that in a second but i'm i'm having a big reaction to hearing that and i didn't know that being if it's well known that you're in a consensually non-monogamous relationship in the military that that could be grounds for imprisonment i just like my jaw is dropped right now and i'm just 
I I don't see I don't see how someone could go to prison for that. I, that's that's a legit law. Like what? Yeah. Um. You can refer to Article One Thirty Four of the Uniform Code of Military Justice. Wow. Uh, it prohibits adultery, which is why if you're openly consensually non-monogamous, um, you can be subject to uh, violation of that code. Wow. Okay. So we apparently need to look into our military codes and um, do a lot of rewriting, looking at all the biases we have, because I hear a lot of ignorance in that. Um, and that that's angering me right now. So, um, but I'll, I'll hop back to what you were saying about the the amount of people that have dropped out of therapy or who who have felt judged by therapists is is so often. I've I've seen so many clients that I work with where they they had a therapist that would put their own bias on it and say, well, if you're you know just frustrated all the time or if you're jealous all the time, then don't do it anymore. And that's such a um. Uh, that doesn't solve the actual problem at hand and it's frustrating. So yeah. Wow. And, and one thing that I was talking about actually um, last week, I was doing a presentation um, and one thing that came up was talking about the stigma and an example that I brought up about like how things um, are set in place not to protect uh, E&M relationships is like um, many times when you're signing a lease with a landlord, they only let you put on two names. And um, again, they want you or even to buy a house, like putting out a down payment for a house. They want you to be legally married, but they only want you legally married to one partner. And if, you know, you have three or more people making, you know, what is uh needed for like whatever it is three times the income or whatever the down payment is and that's all great but in the contract they want you to only have it you know have this amount of money out of these two people you're totally robbing people of being able to create a a better life for themselves just by like not getting the type of housing that could benefit them it's frustrating yeah, housing discrimination is definitely another big um, barrier facing this community. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, you know, on a more hopeful note, I did recently learn of a case study in New York where um, a polyamorous individual's partner died, uh, and they were cohabitating in the same apartment. Yeah. Uh, but that partner was legally married to someone else, uh, so the landlord tried to um, say that the partner who was cohabitating but not married to the individual who passed away um, to remain in the apartment. He would, he could not renew the lease. He would have to start a new one uh, and not maintain the same, um, you know, monthly rent charge. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the court actually ruled in favor of the plaintiff in this case. um, Mm -hmm. So the individual was able to uh, take over their partner's lease. Um, So I think there's progress in some ways. You know, yeah. you have examples of people wanting to move forward and be progressive and support this population yeah. in some states. <laughs> Asterisk right there in yeah. some states. <laughs> Slowly but surely. 
Um, you know, we, we talked a little bit um, before this call, and we kind of got on the idea of sexism and patriarchy. And so I, I would love to discuss this a little bit further in depth with you. Um, talking about like, what does monogamy have to do with sexism or patriarchy? Sure. Um, this is a little bit more reflective of my own personal ideologies rather than uh, the research and just okay. things I've sort of like noticed and observed. Yeah. Uh, so I just want to be transparent there uh, with what I'm about to say. Um, a lot of this is based on like my own opinion and analysis of my own experiences. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think it's important first and foremost to remember that marriage was originally an institution that essentially was the exchange of women as property between families. Um, and obviously, you know, that's not what it represents anymore, but I think it's important to consider that historical context when we look at contemporary gender socialization related to marriage. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're taught as young women that like, that's sort of the end goal for us, like to get married and have mm -hmm. a family. You know, mm -hmm. I know this has been a subject of a lot of uh, previous speakers on your podcast, so I won't get too deep into that. But I also just want to point out uh, the money spent on and representation of monogamous commitment ceremonies. Um, they're all focused on the women and the bride, um, you know, all the reality TV shows that we have about marriage, you know, say mm -hmm. yes to the dress, bridezilla, mm -hmm. uh, that's all about the women, um, you know, the money spent on the reception, the wedding dress, like, you know, so much of that is coming from the bride and or her family, whereas, you know, a tuxedo rental, you know, doesn't really compare to um, those price tags. Um, and also if you take sort of a critical feminist lens to, um, you know, reanalyzing the sex benefits and jealousy of monogamous versus non-monogamous relationships, uh, there's a lot of sexual disadvantages for women in particular in monogamous relationships. Um, you know, our bodies uh, and our sexualities are more sort of changing and fluid, um, and we often, as we get older, we experience sexual dysfunction and waning of sexual desire for, you know, one individual partner. Um, and that's like biologically, that's not, you know, lack of commitment or love necessarily. Um, so being able to be in a non-monogamous relationships does, you know, often heighten sexual satisfaction for women in particular and increase their sexual agency too. Um, and just their ability to explore different likes, dislikes, uh, what have you. Um, and there's also, you know, we see this in uh, relationships, same-sex relationships among women too. There's a greater emphasis on equality and egalitarian values in the context of romantic relationships. Um, there's a lot of that emphasis and polyamory in particular as well that I think benefits women. Uh, not that we don't see these in monogamous hetero relationships as well, but when we do, it's because those partners have worked very hard to deconstruct those norms and that socialization, um, which is something that we sort of had to do anyway if we take on relationships and affirm identities outside of that heteronormative, mononormative um, sort of binary culture. Um, and also thinking again what I know about the jealousy research, um, a lot of like the more serious 
repercussions involving physical violence, um, you know, as a result of jealousy, you know, are suffered by women in monogamous relationships. And that's not to say that women don't commit violence. Um, they certainly do as well. Um, it just takes on different forms, um, you know, just considering their sort of social position and abilities to commit different types of violence. Um, and there's, you have to make a more conscious effort to reframe jealousy in the context of non-monogamous relationships. Uh, so that could be one avenue for uh, reprieve for women as well. And also monogamy tends to just sort of implicitly reinforce gender norms, like financial dependence of women on their husbands and things like that. Um, so I do think that there are potentially greater benefits for women in particular who engage in consensually non-monogamous relationships. But the caveat is, is it also comes with greater stigma. Um, it's a lot more acceptable for men to have multiple partners uh, than it is for women. So it's a little bit of a catch-22 in that way, I guess. Yeah, I, I really love that you went in depth about the kind of benefits that um, women can really have by exploring this other type of dynamic of a relationship and, and really putting them on a level playing field with other genders. Um, so thank you for going into um, your, your thoughts about sexism and patriarchy about that. I, I love that we touched on this. Of course. Um, I do want to note too, though, like that, you know, although I identify as pansexual, um, I'm still a white cisgender woman. So I'm navigating uh, these topics and these relationships from a very privileged perspective. Yeah. Um, and my analysis is not necessarily going to apply for uh, people with different social positions than I. Um, and I think that's important to acknowledge and be aware of in these conversations as well, um, yeah. is that I still you know, again, I navigate these issues from a position of immense privilege, uh, and that's going to color my perspective on, um, you know, how consensual non-monogamy intersects with sexism and patriarchy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and since you kind of brought that up, I'm wondering if you've seen in your research findings, like, you know, is there anything in particular that you've noticed with groups that may identify as bisexual or pansexual um, rather than, you know, research findings that you have in consensually non-monogamous with people who identify as, you know, heterosexual? What, what have you seen in other communities? Yeah, um, so bi slash pansexual erasure is a huge topic of um, research on intra-group discrimination within the LGBTQIA plus community. Um, and, you know, I don't think that this is a problem and research suggests it's not a problem that's exclusive to the LGBTQIA plus community. But, you know, through my own experiences and my reading of the research, um, I have noticed like there's this notion of exclusivity within the LGBTQIA plus community. And I think this also plays into the debate about, you know, is being polyamorous or consensually non-monogamous an identity or a sexual orientation in and of itself. Um, it's reflected in this notion of, you know, are you queer enough? Um, or like in this idea of queer baiting, uh, which I do think is a very real thing. But I also think if we're within our own community making prescriptions about, you know, what makes someone an acceptable member of this community, that's problematic. And to me, that speaks to this more philosophical question of, 
is sexuality something that we do and only becomes valid when we're in a relationship that reflects it, in which case bi and pansexual individuals cannot affirm their identity through monogamy. Like it's not possible for them to fully affirm their sexuality through monogamous relationships. Um, And then if it's not something that we do and only becomes valid when we're in a relationship that reflects it, then is it something that we have or an intrinsic quality, Um, you know, which to me, we don't question heterosexual people's heterosexuality when they are single, you know, their sexuality does not somehow become invalid when they're not in a relationship that reflects it. Um, So I just think that um, this disagreement on identity and this bi pansexual erasure, like it just, I think that's a reflection of internalized stigma. You know, I think that's a reflection of trying to navigate these identities and affirm oneself in a society that, again, really works very hard to introduce these gen or these identities and uh, portray them as deviant in some way. Um, And I think, you know, this is, there's a difference between, you know, experiencing stigma and discrimination Uh, and retaining an invisible identity, you know, I see when I look at stigma and discrimination in the LGBTQIA plus community, uh, it looks it to me, it looks like two spheres of violence and invalidation. Um, And I definitely think, you know, we do at rightfully so turn more attention toward the violence that results from discrimination. Um, And that's what we need, you know, laws and policies to protect people against. Uh, And I consider things like housing discrimination and workplace discrimination forms of violence as well. Um, But I do think on the individual level, uh, a lot of people really struggle with this uh, notion of invalidation uh, and being told that their identity is not what they think it is. And just like this real reckoning with others doubt about one's ability to know themselves um and i think that's psychologically very difficult for people yeah that that's that's the damaging part here you know it's really interesting it's it's almost ironic right because people who come from that kind of point of view and they are invalidating people that are part of these different groups they're the ones doing the damage to them, yet they're saying, oh, they they must be so psychologically damaged that they're engaging in consensual non-monogamy. No, it's damaging when you invalidate them and you cause all of the psychological harm. That's the part we need to fix here. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about stigma. Um and, you, you know, r- right now we, we know that it's just not going to be eliminated tomorrow. Um, with consensual non-monogamy. So with it still existing out there, you know, what steps can be taken to start reducing the stigma around CNM relationships? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely have a few recommendations. Uh, And a lot of these have come from um, my very fortunate opportunities to have been mentored by people who have been doing this work a lot longer than I. Uh, And I think these are some of the things that they would say. Uh, But we already talked about integrating consensual non-monogamy into sex education in public schools. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's very important. Um, You know, the education system is definitely 
fraught with issues, uh, both pragmatically and ideologically. Um, but as an educator, I still do think that education can be transformative uh, and that we can fight some of these ideological battles through learning. Mm-hmm. Um Another thing that I would like to see is more positive and realistic, consensually non-monogamous representation in media. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it's portrayed as exploratory uh, rather than uh, endgame, unfortunately, a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, Or in ways that, um, like in fictional characters, that they try it and then it affirms their commitment to a monogamous relationship with their partner. Yeah, it doesn't work out. Yeah, it's just very, like, silly to me almost. Mm -hmm. Um, And also very, like, still very white, heteronormative representation of CNM to dominates media. Um, Mm -hmm. So I'd like to see them diversify there as well. Yeah. Um, On the individual level, uh, we can do a better job just supporting advocacy initiatives and groups that, um, you know, work to secure legal protections, uh, like anti-discrimination laws for consensually non-monogamous individuals and family law, Mm -hmm. organizations, municipalities, housing law, etc. Yeah. Um, We also need to do a better job including consensual non-monogamy in research, education, and training as well as actual practice in healthcare and higher education settings. Mm-hmm. Um, and for people in careers similar to yourself, I would suggest maybe support use of the term partners counseling instead of couples counseling. Mm-hmm. Uh, that way we can get away from, you know, sort of implicitly reproducing uh, mononormativity through our subtle language. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those would be the things that are, I think, are actionable steps that I would suggest. And I think that, again, those who have been doing this and are, have far more expertise uh, for much longer than I uh, would recommend as well. Yeah, um, I think those are very actionable steps that we, we can start taking as individuals and, and learn and, and dive into how to advocate more like uh, together socially as a group to be able to make those changes. So thank you so much for um, giving those to our audience. Um, so, uh, you know, this has been such a great conversation and I, this is a population I'm really passionate about. So I'm so happy that you were here today to talk about all of this and share your wisdom and, and research findings that you found, um, while learning more about this community. Is there anything else that you would like listeners to know about the topics that you've discussed here today? Yeah, uh, just a couple of things that I would want to add is there's so many diverse forms of consensual non-monogamy. I think people often only see it as, you know, open relationships, swinging and polyamory, and that's kind of it. Um, But there's a lot of things beyond that and in between. Um, And I just would really recommend that people who are interested in pursuing uh, consensual non-monogamy to build and construct what that shaped like for themselves and with their partners uh, rather than, you know, trying to find some sort of prescriptive model. And that kind of aligns with what I was saying too, about there's a variety of communication strategies for success in these relationships as well. And then the other final thought that I do want to leave listeners with, um, and I I think this is really, really important um, to me to express is consensual non-monogamy is not better than monogamy. Um, you know, I would not 
want listeners to romanticize consensual non-monogamy in and of itself. You know, we need to be aware of its complex complexity and the challenges that come with it. Again, especially in a mononormative society that will continue to introduce who you are and the way that you love. Um, but I think that monogamy works equally well for people who function best in monogamous relationships. I think, again, educating yourself and knowing yourself um, and figuring out what you want out of love, romance, sex, intimacy. Um, and if you even want those things, you know, um, we didn't even talk about ACE or ARO people, but uh, consensually non consensual non-monogamy is often very attracted to them as well. Um, but I'm not a member of that population. I don't represent them. So I don't, you know, want to tell you what I think they would say or what benefits they would get out of it necessarily. Um, but, you know, I think we just need to build a society that is more encouraging of every individual to affirm their real identities uh, and then, you know, pursue relational practices that will best support them in doing so. I love that. Like, I, that's the ultimate goal, I think, that we should all work towards is it's not like we're trying to tell you to do your relationship one way or another or another way. It's what do you want and what works for you? What keeps you healthy? What are your desires? And whether that's in a monogamous, a consensually non-monogamous, something fluid going back and forth, whatever that is, explore it. And, you know, do it in a way that, you know, benefits you and the partners around you if you have them. So thank you for those wise last words. Um, I've enjoyed our conversation so much today. Um, if people want to uh, look into your research or s somehow like uh, just see, see what you're all about and learn more about you, is there a way that um, listeners might be able to f find more about your findings or anything like that? Sure. Um, I have a profile set up on Google Scholar. Um, so I would just um, recommend searching for me. Um, I publish under the name R.E. Pertel, so I'm not Rachel there, but um, I think you could very quickly find um, links to all my articles through a quick Google Scholar search. I hope to create a website uh, after I get my doctorate and maybe establish myself a little bit more. Um, but right now, Google Scholar is the quickest way. Perfect. All right. And they'll find loads of information from your research on there. So perfect. All right. Um, well, thank you again for everything today. Uh, listeners, I'll have uh, any other, um, you know, directions to be able to kind of research her, her name to get on Google Scholar to see if you want to read more. So thank you so much for having this conversation with me, Rachel. Yes, of course. Thank you so much for inviting me. All right. Until next time, listeners, take care.